Hey everyone, welcome to this podcast brought to you by Raptor Aid and hosted by me, Jimmy Hill. During the coronavirus lockdown, we decided to host some live interviews with raptor conservationists and experts from all over the world. The podcast you're about to listen to was recorded during the lockdown period live on Facebook. Apologies if some of it sounds a little bit disjointed and we go a little bit off track with questions from the audience, but hopefully you'll enjoy listening to your favourite expert right here on Raptor Rambles. In this interview, we talk to former conservation director of the RSPB, Dr. Mark Avery. Now, Dr. Mark Avery has since gone on to become an author of several books, a fantastic blog writer, and along with that, if that wasn't enough, a campaigner alongside his fellow directors of Wild Justice, Dr. Ruth Tingey and Chris Packham. It was really, really interesting to talk to Mark and find out about what makes him tick since leaving the RSPB, and we hope you enjoy this interview. Right, okay. We should be live on Facebook, on Raptor Eight's Facebook page, so welcome anyone who's tuned in for this, and uh, firstly, as well, welcome Mark, Dr. Mark Avery. Thank you very much for joining us. It's really kind of uh, you. No, that's okay. This is the first time I've, I have Zoomed. So thank you for uh, introducing me to this. I've been Microsoft teaming. I've been Skyping. I have occasionally made a phone call to people. And I've also written letters in the past. But this is the first Zoom I've done. Brilliant. There we go. Um, uh, that's uh well i i know you have been busy so i so i appreciate it i really i really do appreciate it and i know a few people have been asking for me to uh to to yeah get you on because the the hen harrier topic among many other things is that i know you discuss has has come up several times and we had catholic dr kathleen thomas on on tuesday so so it's kind of come on come quite well to have you on so i like i said to you just off this but i always start in the with the same the same question um with everyone because i think it's one of the reasons i started these interviews is because i like to find out about where it all began so even to sort of where the first interest was in nature and wildlife um and i know you've you've done a lot in your life in terms of going right up to the RSPB and beyond now present day so yeah but but tell us where did it all start mark where was that where was that spark if you can think of it for wildlife and nature uh, i think with my parents so um i'm 62 now i grew up just south of, or in bristol and just south of bristol uh, lived in the countryside in a place called Pensford, which um, was about 40 minutes um, on the bus into the centre of Bristol to go to school. Um, lived in the countryside. Uh, my parents, I'm an only child, my parents took me on the holidays to the countryside, to places like the New Forest and Mid Wales and the Lake District. And we walked and we looked at flowers. They weren't experts, but, you know, they were interested. So... Um, yeah. Who knows? I got interested. When I went to um, grammar school, Bristol Grammar School, there was a school natural history society, which was basically full of birders. And um, there were two teachers who used to take us out in a minibus on a Sunday. Um, 
to places like Chew Valley Lake and Slimbridge and Greendown and Somerset Levels. Uh, and I just got more and more into birds. It, it was interesting that many of the people who were in that club are still into birds in quite a big way. Uh, and some of them um, were put off probably by the rest of us within a few months, but um, I've stuck with it. I think partly because I was interested in birds, I did biology at A-level. Because I did biology at A-level, um, I went and did a degree in biology at university. I went to Cambridge. Yeah. Um, that was fantastic. Learned a lot. Uh, also went on an expedition ringing waders in Norway and did lots of other things. Uh, so developed more of um, a kind of working in nature conservation or in science, in biology. Uh, what did I do then? Oh, I got a job with a guy called John Krebs in the zoology department in Oxford for a year. Then I did a PhD on pipistrel bats, uh, looking at the winter activity of pipistrel bats. Then I got a postdoctoral research fellowship, which was looking at the social behavior of European bee eaters in the south of France. That sounds quite fun, doesn't it? And it was. Um, and then I got a job at the RSPB in the science department. And um, I worked at the RSPB for 25 years. Uh, I was the conservation director for 13 of those years. I left the RSPB 11 years ago, no, nine years ago, over nine years ago. And since then I've just been mucking around, writing books, writing a blog, uh, causing trouble. So that's how I got here. Um, I think you've disappeared from my screen, Jimmy. So I wonder what your next question would be. Um, how about when did you first become interested in raptors? Um, well, I'm not a raptor expert. I am interested in raptors, but I'm not sure I'm interested in raptors more than I'm interested in uh, any other species of bird, really. But the state of play with some of our raptors is a fascinating insight into British society, um, how, oh, you're back. Yes, <laughs> I don't know what happened there. Well done I've for been rabbiting on. on. Good, keep uh, going. I was saying, I was saying about uh, why I'm interested in raptors and saying I'm not simply interested in raptors, but what's happening to some of our raptors uh, is a fascinating insight both into land use issues, politics, social issues, as well as nature conservation. And nature conservation sits in wider society. Um, what we can do and what we need to do is all down to what other people are doing, rights and wrongs. So um, yeah. I write a column in Birdwatch magazine called The Political Birder. And that's because I think nature conservation is political, not necessarily party political, although anyone who thinks that the Labour Party and the Conservative Party would treat nature conservation in the same way, would have to 
be absolutely bonkers, I think. So that those two ideologies have different ways of approaching nature conservation. Um, yeah. Right, I'll talk for about five minutes then, it's your turn. Oh yeah, well no, I, I obviously I missed a bit of it. Did you mention your PhD? Because I actually don't know, what, what did you do your PhD in? Ah, I did a PhD. Uh, supervised by a great guy called Paul Racy at Aberdeen mm -hmm. University on the winter activity of pipistrelle bats. And okay, you might yeah. think pipistrelle bats just go to sleep for six, seven or eight months in the winter. Um, but it's a bit more complicated than that because they wake up now and again and um, they go out and feed when it's nice and warm. So I looked at... Um, uh, how clever they were, or in reality, how natural selection has made them look really clever at making foraging decisions during the winter. So I used to wander around with a bat detector, which all those years ago was about the size of a shoebox and not very sophisticated, um, finding bats on winter evenings along the River Cam in Cambridge and recording their feeding rates and when they were active and when they weren't. Oh yeah, excellent. So when did you, because obviously you were a long, you were a staff member at the RSPB for a long time. Um, was it 25 years in total? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, when, how did, when did that come about in your, what period of your life did you jump in <laughs> at, at RSPB and then uh, whistle, well, whistle stop tour of that? Yeah, okay. So after my PhD, I got a two-year postdoctoral research fellowship at Oxford when I was studying bee eaters. That came to an end and I got one or two little jobs, but I thought, hmm, crikey, I need a proper job. I've been a student yeah. of various sorts forever. Um, and um, I got a job in a very strange way at the OSPB because I was doing some work for the Forestry Commission and um, reviewing a lot of papers on birds and forestry. And I found a, in this big box of stuff that they gave me, I found a paper that had been written by Colin Bibby, who was the head of research at RSPB at the time, who was a great guy. He died quite a long time ago, but he was a great guy, very clever. Uh, and this paper wasn't published, it was a draft paper. And I read it and I thought I found a mistake in it. So I phoned Colin up slightly in slight trepidation because he was far cleverer than I was or am and said oh Colin I think there might be a mistake in this paper and he said oh well you better come and chat to me about it which I did a couple of days later and there was a mistake so I was right um, he changed the paper he had enough time to change the paper uh, you might think he'd be really hacked off that I'd pointed out this mistake but he was rather pleased that he could correct it before it was published. And he offered oh, me a job. Oh, nice. But that doesn't happen very often, does it? You tell somebody they've oh. got something wrong and they offer you a job. So he offered me a job <laughs> working on uh, the effects of uh, afforestation on upland birds, things like green shanks, golden plover, dunlin in the flow country in Scotland, in Caithness and Sutherland, because the whole place was being wrecked by massive afforestation. So that's how I got into the RSPB and um, I did 
fun research on that type of thing, on roseate terns and other things. I became head of research and then I became conservation director and I did that for the last half of the 25 years I was at the OSPB. And conservation director uh, is a fantastic job. Um, it means that you're involved with the conservation work of the OSPB, obviously, uh, buying nature reserves. One year we spent 10 million quid buying land. That's fun. I don't get to do that these days. Um, we were involved in working with landowners, particularly farmers, giving advice and help uh, to those farmers who wanted advice and help on yeah. declining farmland birds, you know, from soil buntings, uh, corn crakes in Scotland, stone curlews to linnets and um, tree sparrows and yellow wagtails in the wider countryside. And we were trying to influence government policy. So I spent quite a lot of time in a suit and a tie, which you can see I don't have to do very much now, um, sitting in meetings in Whitehall, uh, met a couple of prime ministers, not that they took any notice of me, but met a couple of yeah. prime ministers. Uh, met an awful lot of government ministers and you're trying to put across a message for nature conservation that, and trying to make it stick. And we had some successes and quite a lot of failures because it's difficult persuading government to do the right thing, but it's, it's worth it when you win. So there was always this juggling of how much should the RSPB invest in kind of traditional nature conservation, which would involve Know, the investigations team catching baddies, uh, buying yep. nature reserves, species reintroductions, that type of thing. And how much should we be trying to change the system so that the whole world is better, not just for birds, but for nature. And that's quite a difficult balance to strike, really. Yeah, absolutely. Do you, do you, do you look back at your time with the RSPB then and think yeah right we did make a difference back then it sounds like you know when I think about it and I've not looked at it in detail um but it's I'd say you probably have RSPB have made a lot of differences to to how we hopefully manage the land to some extent for birds do you is that right or do you feel that absolutely could you have done more Oh, well, we could have done more because we're not perfect. Yeah. And if we'd had twice as much money, we could have done more. But we could have done yeah. more. Um, but uh, the status of birds and the status of wildlife generally in the UK would be worse if it weren't for the RSBB. But, you know, that's true of the wildlife trusts and the whole load of other NGOs as well. Um, yeah. This, I mean... The trouble is, um, having worked in nature conservation, you know, for 35 years or so now, um, you have to look quite hard for the things that are a lot better. And it's quite easy to see the things that haven't improved much or have got worse. Yeah. Um, but what you have to re realize is that things would be even worse if we hadn't put all that effort in. So, um, I wish we could have done more, but 
things are stacked against nature conservation, really. Yeah, well, of course. I mean, you only have to look at yeah a, a lot of things, and and that's that's blatantly obvious. But I mean, even like you say, even simple things like spending ten million pounds buying land for for conservation purposes is in itself just as one one aspect is is a is an incredible achievement that there's probably. I, I'm trying to think of any other, another conservation organisation that could, say, yeah, say that maybe the World Land Trust or someone like that. But yeah, it's uh, it's pretty impressive. So was it a net? Obviously, you running through there, uh, RSPB and and your involvement with things like Whitehall and ministers. Was it inevitable then that you were going to make the switch to when you when you left the RSPB? to campaigning and blogging and was that always in your mind or was it a kind of a case of I, I, I want to finish this I've done my time and this is a good time and and then you thought oh actually yeah this is this fell into my life you started blogging like people do and and it evolved from there or was it a conscious thought well <clears throat> uh I did decide that I had to leave the RSPB because I've been doing the same job for nearly 13 years. And although it was fantastic, um, it would have been ridiculous to do it for another 13 years because that wouldn't have been good for me and it wouldn't have been good for the RSPB. So I had to make a break at some stage. And I did make the break um, soon after the coalition government uh, got into Westminster. Uh, not immediately. I stayed for a, almost a year after that, but um, it was a tough time for the environment. Um, looking back, I mean, the, the coalition government, but it was mostly the Conservatives, um, were cutting uh, resources to DEFRA. They were cutting resources to nature conservation and the environment. They were getting rid of things that they called quangos, things like the Sustainable Development Commission, uh, which was the type of organisation that would look at government and independently criticise it and judge it. There were quite a lot of things that were got rid of. Um, Natural England uh, had its budget cut because DEFRA had its budget cut and that was passed on in spades yep. to Natural England. But, you know, the statutory nature conservation agency, Natural England, was made uh, less independent and it um, is not like it used to be. And, and that's a big gap there. We need a statutory nature conservation body uh, that can stand up to government and that isn't where we are at the moment partly I think through a little bit of timidity of the people in the people who are still in natural England but also yeah. that's how government has tried to make it it's inconvenient if you're a government doing badly on a particular area if your own advisor uh, points it out. It would be like your medical and scientific advisors saying that you cocked up in terms of deciding when lockdown should be. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we, well, we are. We're still seeing it now, aren't we? You know, cuts and 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 uh, we 
yeah, you only have to look at natural England and, and some of the decisions that are being made, such as crude meddling, but we can come on to that. I'm sure we'll come on to that a bit later on. Um, so I want to... You asked, me about, on... you asked me about blogging, though, and I didn't really say that. Yeah, no, sorry, yeah. yeah. No, no, my fault. I wittered on and didn't completely answer the question. No, but, um, I'd started blogging at the RSBB. I blogged for a couple of years uh, before I left the RSBB uh, because staff in the communications departments in the RSPB asked me to and I resisted for quite a while thinking well, I'm not sure I want to do this will I be any good at it have I got anything to say uh, and it's up to other people to decide whether I did have anything to say but I did it for two years and then you you basically get into a habit when I walk around the world I'm looking at things and listening for things and thinking oh I could blog about that and so when I left the RSPB, the first thing I did was I, um, four days later, I got on a plane to Washington, D.C., hired a car for seven weeks and dropped it off at Los Angeles, um, having taken a rather circuitous route across the USA. Uh, it, well, it was a good thing to do, actually, because um, it was made a, a clean break with work and with the UK, I wasn't waking up and listening today to the Today programme going, oh, we should be on there. Oh, it's not we anymore. It's somebody else's job. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I saw I saw my first wolves and, you know, first, uh, what else did I see? My first California condor and loads of other stuff. And it was a, and I blogged every day from motels across the USA about that. And I, again, I stayed in the habit. So I thought, well, when I get back to the UK, I'll blog now and again. And I think I've written in the last nine years, seven and a half thousand blogs. So I'm kind of in the habit now. <laughs> like, I think it's more than a habit now, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, well, talking about writing, obviously, author, we can't forget that. Is it five books you've got out at the moment? Or I think I've counted them, unless there's one that wasn't on your website. That yeah, missed. there is one that's not on the website, but oh, that's, that's my then. fault, not yours. So no, yeah, all right. I, produced, I wrote a book called Fighting for Birds when I left the RSPB, which is not about my life and times with the RSPB, although it's obviously partly about that, but I look at it really as a guide to how nature conservation is done by somebody who was an insider for quite a long time. Uh, and that's still worth reading, I would say. Then uh, there are a couple of books I've done with um, Keith Batten, uh, Behind the Binoculars, and the one that isn't on my website is behind more binoculars, which are okay. interviews with famous or infamous birdie people. Brilliant. Um, I wrote a book about the extinction of the passenger pigeon uh, mm -hmm. called A Message from Martha. Yeah. Uh, in some ways, that's my favourite book that I've written, but I don't know. Depends which day you catch me on. Uh, okay. I wrote a book called Remarkable Birds, which is my mum's favourite. 
Um, my mum is 94. She likes oh, yeah. remarkable birds more than all the other ones I've written. Uh, and all she's done is looked at the pictures because it's finely illustrated with paintings and drawings, none of which are anything to do with me. So thanks, Mum. <laughs> it's the bit that I, you like the bits that I had nothing to do with. And the sixth one is, is this one, which is called Inglorious. Ah, you've got the hardback. This is the paperback. Um, yeah. I, I ought to tell people that they all ought to go out and buy a copy, but it's out of print now, so you'll have to find it on Amazon or, Amazon or something, yeah. eBay or something, yeah. One eBay, places there. like that. But um, yeah, so Inglorious is about grey shooting and why we should ban driven grey shooting and uh, the hen harrier crops up in it quite a lot. And uh, But it's a mixture of politics and campaigning and a bit of observation of nature. I mean, it is, it's a fascinating book. I have to admit, I it's been a, I read it when, I think near enough when it first came out. Um, and, and it is, because it doesn't just focus on hen harriers. Obviously I'm a full on raptor nut. That's what I'm interested in. It does, and it, it, it covers everything, like you say, from the land use to, you know, the predator control. There's all, there's all sorts of stuff in it. And I think for even people who just have a general interest in, the countryside it would be a well it is a real eye-opener for them no doubt about that um so yeah there's one there's one I'm, fact i'm that glad you said that i'm glad you said eye-opener because that is one of the things that people often say to me uh, what you've just said they say well somebody gave me this book of yours and i thought it was going to be quite dull because i know a bit about raptors being bumped off but it was an eye-opener how much of this happens and what all the other connections to grey shooting and land management are. So when people say that to me, I think, oh, well, I must have written a half decent book if that's what people think about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to just to point out, I was I was on we interviewed um, Professor Carl Jones a few weeks ago um, and I spoke to him last night he should be watching hello carl if you are and he sends his hello, regards carl. As well. he sends his regards as well and he mentioned it he said it's a wonderful book he absolutely oh. loved it um so so yeah it is it's it's because it is an art because you don't you don't connect thing you think you, obviously there's a red grouse on the front you, you know the red writing on the front you think oh here we go this is going to be pretty full on um in terms of you know maybe shoving it down people's throats but it doesn't it doesn't at all um, it's easy to, it's for people to digest what's going on and it, it does it connect for me it connects things like flooding you don't you watch it on the news and you see all these poor people in Staley Bridge or wherever it is out and you don't think well actually you know it's got a connection with something that's going on up the hill um, you just think well a lot of people probably don't even think anymore about it so in in that sense I think it's a really important book how in terms of a book like that and all the detail and the facts and the information that you've got to get right how long does it take how was it an easy write did you enjoy it you know how did that go writing this book I'm assuming you enjoyed it you wouldn't have, probably wouldn't have done it otherwise I don't think I don't know I might be wrong <laughs> uh, we certainly certainly wouldn't do it for the money um yeah so uh, um 
it's a bit difficult to say how long it took me to write. Um, it didn't take very long, uh, but it took, it was a quite a long run up and quite a lot of thinking. So um, maybe it took four or five months to write, but that was pretty full on. Uh, I wake up early in the morning uh, and by early in the morning, it's quite often half past four or five o'clock. Um, and that's the time when I write best. So I would be sitting at a computer writing, uh, make my wife a cup of tea at six, half past six, have breakfast, keep writing until I'm completely knackered. Uh, then have a break, go back later in the day and correct all the typing errors, spelling mistakes and that type of thing, because you don't need a brain to do that, but it's got to be done sometime. And then maybe yeah. spend an hour in the evening writing a bit more, but always stop when you've got more to give in the writing. Don't stop when you're stuck. In fact, if I sat down at the computer at five in the morning and by half past five, I was playing one of those silly games that you find on computers because I couldn't get, uh, after a while I just realized no, have a day off, go out yeah. birding, do something in the garden. There's no use trying to do it. Trying to force it, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's. I mean, that's that's great. That's fantastic information. Like, yeah, insight for people. But only, who write me. It takes quite a lot of time after you've written it. So before you write a book, you think, oh well, I've got to write a hundred thousand words on this subject. And when you start, you think, oh, no, I can't think how I'm going to write 100,000 words on this yeah. um, and then you write 125,000 words and cut it down to 100,000 if you're me that's the way I do it yeah. um, and you think you've done it then you send it off to the um, your editor the publisher with this great feeling of um, you know cool, I've done something really good but then it drags on for ages because you have to read the page proofs and authors are terrible at doing that because you just read what you wrote not what yeah. is on the page you have to um for any um quotes from other people's work you have to get permission from other publishers and that's the job of the author uh you have to do a load of stuff about um uh publicity filling in dar forms for your publisher um, uh, and in the case of Inglorious, I had to go through it with some lawyers as well because they were a bit worried that um, we might get sued. Yeah. Um, so we had to take some bits out, none of which would have got us sued at all. And yeah. some of them were quite good bits. Maybe, maybe I'll stick them back in and publish another <laughs> copy. But that one or two quite maybe, good yeah. bits. There are, there are, they're not big chunks, but they're one or two when I get to um, a bit, because I look at look things up in the book myself. And when I get to a bit, I think, I'm sure there was, oh, yeah, we had to take that today. Yeah. Didn't we? yeah. <laughs> was that when you're writing it was is were there any moments where you you're writing it? And, and I don't mean this. I definitely certainly don't mean this in like a, a a malicious way were you writing it thinking oh that's a good that is a that is a good fact or that's a good bit of information they're not you know someone who's against what you're publishing isn't going to like this being in print there probably was a few moments like that was there well i think um 
Inglorious, uh, as it says right at the front, which some people um, misconstrue really, but it's a book with a point of view. Um, and I was putting, so it's not a prejudice, although somebody could say it was a prejudice, but it's a point of view I've come to over a long period of time and after much thought. So my aim was to put across that point of view in as clear and convincing a way as possible, but also in a fair way. So there's quite a lot in there about, well, if we got rid of driven grey shooting, there'd be fewer waders in the uplands. That would be a bit of a shame, wouldn't it? Which it would, but you know, you have to look at all the pluses and all the minuses and weigh up things. It's, I mean, it may be either that I was um, suited to working for the RSPB or maybe I learned it a bit at the RSPB. I see everything in shades of gray, really, that, you know, I believe that um, in the worst people in the world, there's a bit of good. And that in the best people in the world, there's a bit of bad. And yeah. most of us are in between. And that's true of organizations as well as people. And it's true of arguments too. If everything were cut and dried, there is no doubt about it. It's this 100% then I guess we'd sort things out a lot quicker. But just because there are arguments for and against doesn't mean you can't make a decision. It means that you have to look at the arguments quite carefully and weigh them up. And um, I kind of hope that that's what Inglorious does. Clearly, if I were commissioned to write a book, which I never will be, on why driven grey shooting is a brilliant idea and we ought to expand it and do even more of it, it would be a different book. Um, it'd be a pretty difficult one to write, I think. Yeah. Um, but this is a book that um, I hope is fair, but comes down very strongly on one side. So a question, just think this came into my head while you you were talking about, about that, your, your point of view. Does it annoy you then? Because you're obviously, you know, there's no two ways about it. You're out there in the in the public eye, you know, with your views and your opinions on driven grouse shooting, which we'll, we'll come to in a minute, which I was going to ask you about, but until this popped into my head, does it annoy you then when people with the advent of social media, which is good and bad, people misconstrue things, people twist things, people don't look at the whole picture, for someone who publishes a book like this, does that annoy you or do you have to just accept, well, I suppose you just covered it there, you accept that it's not black and white, some people, you know, there's this greyness in it, but does it, does it annoy you? Does it frustrate you when people throw things at you potentially that aren't true or they've not taken into consideration what you've actually written or published? Um, I'm kind of used to it, I think. I think that's, that's, that's the case. I'm used to it. And uh, I've been used to it for quite a long time. I mean, um, when I was at the RSPB, I used to have a daily media summary of what was in the papers, particularly mentions of the RSPB. And I used to look forward to Thursdays when we would get shooting times and hear what shooting times was saying about me quite often and the RSPB. And it was never very complimentary 
but you kind of look at it and think, well, they've got that wrong, they've got that wrong, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? And sometimes you go, well, actually, that's a fair point. We ought to have a look at that. So I don't, you know, I'm all for vigorous debate. I can um, dish it out, so I have to be prepared to take it back. What I don't like, um, but I'm used to, is when people um, uh, uh, construe my motives as being different from how they actually are. So apparently I'm um, campaigning to end driven grouse shooting because I'm making a load of money out of it. Well, I don't know where that money's coming from because I haven't seen anything. You certainly don't make loads of money out of writing books. Um, or because I'm <coughs> being paid to, or because I'm an animal rights extremist. Uh, well, I know a few animal rights extremists and none of them would count me in their number. They think I'm a bit of a wishy-washy um, softy, really. So, um, but people label you and you know, that's kind of okay. And, and I suppose on the other side, yeah. what I get annoyed about is where um, I haven't been clear, which happens sometimes, where I think, oh, I can see why they think that. Uh, even though if they'd read it another time, maybe they wouldn't think that. But I can see why they think that. I ought to have made that a bit clearer. And then I, I'm more likely to beat myself up if I think I haven't done a good job in making things clear than in if some idiot gives me a load of abuse on Twitter, which uh, happens so often, it's... Um, <laughs> I don't take any notice. It's just, yeah, you have to ignore it, yeah. Otherwise, well, you'd never get a book written <laughs> or a block, uh, unless Absolutely. you're writing a lot, I suppose. Um, okay, so in terms of in terms of driven ground shooting, your, is your, your stance on it that it should be banned? That's right, and in, in I'm saying that, yeah? Uh, yeah, I would ban driven ground shooting, which involves, you know, very... Um, intensive land management, particularly all that burning. Um, so I don't want to ban all shooting and I don't even want to ban all grouse shooting. I mean, it wouldn't worry me if all grouse shooting stopped, but I am not trying to get walked up rough shooting where some people walk across the moors and shoot at grouse as they flush them up, as well as shooting at the odd snipe or something like that. That's not what how I would want to spend my time. And I don't regard it as an incredibly yeah. admirable hobby, but it's low down in, in the scale of things. Uh, driven grouse shooting depends on criminality because birds of prey, uh, which are fully protected by law, uh, are in conflict with that form of grouse shooting. They're not in conflict with low key grouse shooting. In fact, many of the people who do walked up grouse shooting would probably be just as happy if they had a brilliant view of a golden eagle as if they shot an extra couple of grouse. So again, I'm called anti-shooting, but I am campaigned against wild fouling pheasants except we reduce a ridiculous uh, uh, release a ridiculous number of pheasants so 
There's reform in other bits of shooting, but driven ground shooting is the worst one of all. And there's no way out of it. It's um, unsustainable to its very core. And I mean, one of the ways I look at it is if we didn't, well, we're the only country in the world that has driven grouse shooting. You know, everybody's got willow grouse, a bit like red grouse, same species probably. Nobody else is managing them to the extent that we do. Mm -hmm. If we didn't have driven grouse shooting in this country, you'd never introduce it tomorrow. You know, if it was part of the post-COVID uh, economic restoration plan, let's all dress up in tweed, stand in little shelters, and a load of people will chase grouse across the moor and will shoot at them. Nobody would suggest that that was a great thing to do. But because um, we've been doing it for only just over 150 years, um, it's a tradition, apparently, like uh, not giving women the vape was a tradition and sticking kids up chimneys was a tradition and slavery was a tradition. Um, yeah. So yeah. a tradition that doesn't count for me. So, yeah, I'd like to see it gone and it will be gone. It'll be gone in the next 10 years or so, I, I predict. Yeah, well, absolutely. I think you, you, one of the words that, yeah, it, it needs reform. I mean, we, we all have our opinions. I do. I'm, I'm, I always remember, I used to know a couple that would go grouse shooting. And every year they would come, when, at some point they'd say, oh, yes, we had another bumper year of grouse. And this was year on year on year that they would have another, uh, the bigger, bigger bags of grouse, bigger, and it, this was an annual thing. And you just thought, how is, how is it, how's that sustainable? How does this keep, keep growing and growing and growing? Um, and yeah, and then obviously I live in the, well, Cheshire. So, so pheasant shooting is a big, big part. And again, it's, that's another aspect that I personally can't get my head around how you let out millions of pheasants without really, trying to understand the impact that it's going to have never mind the idea of then going out and killing as many as you can but and i'm not animal rights activist at all um so yeah it's it's interesting talking about the hen harry then because i'm just i'm keeping an eye on the time because we could literally i could yeah we could talk about the individuals in ins and outs of driven grouse shooting until 10 o'clock tonight or longer um talking about hen harriers there's there's no doubt i think anyone who's been who's interested in birds of prey and has been following new the news in in the last two weeks or if you've been following the last two years but especially in the last two weeks with what's been coming out on on certain blogs like wrapped persecution uk the hen harriers are, are in dire straits you know in, in the uk it was it today th that, that was published 37 birds i think that we know of you know in the sense that it's shown on on or next to grouse moors where they've they've uh, stopped giving off signals with GPS or what, whatever the reasons might be. What does first of all, my question was, what does a hen what do hen harriers mean to you? Because obviously you've covered su you cover such broad things in in the environment and and just driven driven grouse shooting alone. So what do what do hen harriers mean to you? And how do we apart from the big thing we've just talked about of banning driven grouse shooting how do we how do we save them how do we get get around this if you, if you can answer that question 
don't know whether you can. Well, the hen harriers mean to me. Um, they're one of my favourite birds. You know, quite often asked what my favourite bird is. Um, I think the roseate tern is pretty high up there because I've worked on roseate terns for a while and I worked on bee eaters for a while. Uh, but hen harriers, I remember the first hen harrier I saw, I was 12. Uh, it was in at Studland in the winter in Pool Harbour with a couple of uh, friends from school and it was a ringtail and uh, I can still see it in my mind's eye. And I could probably recall most of the hen harriers I've seen in my life in days bird watching because they're fantastic birds and they, they're just lovely. And they, you can't expect to see them, but sometimes you do and it's just great. Uh, but it's also because they are um, oppressed. I, I would generally stand up for the underdog and in this case, the underbird. So this is a bird that is put upon, it's got full legal protection and yet it's bumped off to such a large scale that they almost don't exist as a breeding bird in England. And they don't exist across England and Scotland, hardly at all on driven grouse moors. And there ought to be hundreds and hundreds of them on that land. So this is, a, you know, um, my politics are of the left. I stand up for the, uh, those people who are having a tough time in life and the hen harrier strikes me as a bird example. So what should we all do? Um, it's a bit difficult to know what the post-coronavirus world will look like, but we'll still have MPs. And I do think that political pressure is how we will change this. Um, we've had a conservative government for quite a long time. Uh, the shine on Boris Johnson seems to be wearing pretty thin at the moment. Um, I think things would be better under a different government, as indeed they are in Scotland. They're not perfect in Scotland, but it's an interesting um, comparison with in England. In Scotland, you have a minister, Rosanna Cunningham, who's always talking about how bad raptor persecution is. We do yeah. not have English environment biodiversity ministers who actually talk about this thing. They avoid it. They say, oh, well, ground shooting, it's a legal thing. We're against people killing things, but they don't do anything and they work for us. I believe that. It's not going to be top of the voters list. Um, but I think you should all write to your MPs. They'll be shocked at a time of coronavirus, Brexit, and everything else if they get, if they each get a letter saying, what are you going to do about the hen harrier? <laughs> I'll give them a big shock, I think. <laughs> there, was, there was a line in your, there's one, as I said, I haven't, I haven't read, just going back to this book, on the same, what Ooh. we're talking about. Um, there's a line in this book that's- I can't hear you now. Oh, can you hear me now? Is that working? Can you are you going to come back to me? Oh, there you are. Oh, is that working? Sorry, I don't know yeah. what happened. Yeah, no. the, I was just going to say there's a, there's a line in Inglorious, and please correct me if I'm well I'm wrong, and I don't 
re remember exactly. Something, something to do with 99% of people don't know what a hen harrier is. What words to that effect? How, how do we get around that? Apart from obviously books like Inglorious, because it is, yeah. there's, there's not, I'm in a minority, I'll, I'll admit that, in that, you know, I'm a raptor field worker and I'm interested in raptors. It's about the masses. It's it's about getting people interested in it. How, or have you seen another question, maybe rather than how you, you fix it or get people interested? Have you seen any great, wonderful shifts and changes in in getting the wider world interested in hen harriers in particular? Yeah, I think I think we, uh, I think we're making progress, and we're making quite rapid progress actually that um, decision makers know that there's an issue about both grouse shooting, driven grouse shooting and hen harriers. Now they may not all be doing anything about it but it niggles away at them. Uh, they can talk about it either all oh, don't worry about it or something ought to be done about it uh, and that wasn't the case 10 years ago. And here's, a, here's another example. I'm an addict of university challenge i just love quiz programs like that and i think it's about three times now that hen harriers have been have come up on university challenge there was one uh, that was um the bird circus cyanius according to the rspb is the most uh persecuted bird in the uk because it eats red grouse what is its common name and neither team got it right but one of them said golden eagle and the other one said peregrine falcon both of which are good answers and hen harrier would have been the right answer well for that to come up on quiz programs now you yeah. know we're no longer talking about you know whether it's happening it's happening and lots of people know more about it and I think you've remembered the bit in Inglorious pretty much correctly because so what we have to remember is that hardly anybody's heard of a hen harrier or cares about them or about driven grouse shooting. Um, so let's say there's one percent who love hen harriers and maybe want to get driven grouse shooting banned and there's one percent who maybe loathe hen harriers and are dead keen that driven grouse shooting continues. If we talk to the 98% in the middle, truthfully, about what it's all about, they're going to recruit to our end of that argument. Um, the more people know, they're not going to say, well, what a fantastic thing this is. Burn the hills, uh, cause more flooding, cause more carbon emissions, and you have to kill a load of wonderful protected birds to make it profitable and it's all just to go out and shoot birds for fun they're not going to recruit more supporters with that being the case so everybody um who knows whether there's going to be much of a grouse shooting season this year 2020 with movement restrictions i suspect there will be but i suspect it'll be a bit smaller but it will be in the newspapers it will be in the media, that's the time when, if you're allowed to go down to the pub by then, uh, to talk to people in the pub, say, oh, do you know, the glorious 12th is coming up. Do you know about grouse shooting? 
Do you know about hen harriers? Do you know about the scale of rat persecution? Uh, tell them to borrow this book from their public library or you could lend your copy to somebody else. Yeah. Um, say, have a look at this before the 12th of August. Um, we can all spread the word, but the word is spreading and, and places like Ruth's blog, Raptor Persecution UK, uh, is in some ways depressing because it's a, a constant litany of wildlife crime, but um, there's no getting away from it. There are all these birds being killed out there and most people don't quite realize that. And when they do realize that, they go, blimey, that's yeah. wrong. And it is wrong. So we should stop it. And that's up to all of us because we're citizens, voters, taxpayers, we're in charge. We will stop it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, just I'm, again, I'm sorry, I'm just watching the time. I want to quickly ask you about wild justice, if I may, if that's all right. Um, you're obviously involved in wild justice with Ruth Tingey and Chris Packham. Um, does it, with wild justice, obviously the, bi the big thing that I think people will, anyone who knows or has heard of wild justice, will probably be around the general license issue um, and, and getting general, well, when naturally in England pulled general licenses. Does it, does it again, does it frustrate you, annoy you? And it's probably a similar question to what I asked you before when people don't really look at the bigger picture or read on Wild Justice's website what your aims and objectives are. And they just see the, the sort of, Daily Mail, for instance, headline <laughs> of, you know, general licenses, general licenses pulled by um, because of Chris Packham or whatever, all your songbirds are going to die. And I know that, right, so, but that's the sort of thing you, you, that you were seeing touted about. Does it, does that, again, does that frustrate, just frustrate you or how do you get around that and deal with that, that aspect of, of the media? Um, I think, um, the scale of vitriol that we got uh, when Natural England pulled the licenses, which wasn't what we asked them to do, but fair enough, the scale of vitriol that we got um, surprised Ruth uh, a lot more than they surprised Chris and me. Because um, I think we've got into more of these things, so we're more used to it. Um, and the thing about wild justice is that we are taking legal cases. So they are going to be decided by lawyers, by judges in the courts. And um, we won that case. Now, we haven't, it hasn't worked all its way through. DEFRA are doing a review of general licenses. We're taking action against Natural Resources Wales on their general licenses. We're still going. But it doesn't matter what the shooting times or some shooter on Twitter says, because that's not going to, A, they've got the wrong end of the stick, but they're certainly not going to influence a judge. This is all down to making the law work for wildlife. So it is kind of water off a duck's back, except that if you have the type of personality that I've got, uh, you kind of are slightly encouraged when everybody is clearly so pissed off with you that they start 
ranting and raving because it just shows that they're nervous about what's going to happen next. Um, yeah. And that's what it's like as a campaigner, even at the RSBB. Um, we would sometimes make criticisms of government and um, my boss would get a phone call from a government minister complaining about something that I'd said. Uh, and my, my boss at the RSPB would, all, would always take that pretty well. Um, wouldn't tell me off, he'd tell me about it, but he wouldn't tell me off. Uh, and he got complaints too. This is Graham Wynne. But uh, you just take that as meaning, ooh, that's interesting. We must, we must be getting somewhere here. If we weren't getting anywhere, they wouldn't be phoning up to complain. Yeah, yeah. It's only because we better redouble our efforts on this. So um, uh, it's encouraging in some ways. Um, some of it's quite nasty. Chris gets a lot of it. Um, Ruth gets yeah. a lot of it. Um, I partly... Uh, don't notice quite a lot of the stuff that is coming my way because I don't spend that long reading all the things that people say about me on social media. Um, but I think I'm more used to it and I'm pretty robust really and I take it as encouragement. That's a bit perverse I know but I do. Well I, I, it's funny you say about perverse I when and I mentioned this to Ruth I've only ever experienced it in a small way and was when we Raptor Aid launched the local Peregrine Watch and it made its way onto um, Pigeon Fanciers pages right across to Australia. We were on Australian Pigeon Fanciers pages and I was getting messages and I was being called all the names under the sun um, for, for about a week. And yeah, perversely, me and my wife sat, you know, with a cup of tea, reading them or I'd read them off to her and we, you just have to laugh about some of them. I mean, a lot of them we, we ignored and then you don't reply. But yeah, we, we laughed at it. I was a bit worried when my wife was agreeing with a couple of them, but then that's that's new. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, so it's 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 not it's not cool, but yeah, you do you you do have to just ignore it. Um my, my Facebook has just started working a little bit. So i I'm just watching the time again, um, because we're coming near the end. Uh, a couple of questions have come in. What one of them is? What's your stance on non-native species, Mark? I don't know whether you want to answer that from from your days in the RSPB. What was your stance? Or now, what was what's your stance for grey squirrels, ringneck parakeets? Um, um, depends on the species. So, I think um, uh, let's take the little owl. Mm. So, probably not native to the UK, certainly introduced, yeah. uh, uh, declining now. I don't see little owls very often, uh, but it's a near neighbor on the continent. All you have to do is get out the other side of the channel tunnel and you can see little owls. Is little owl a conservation problem? No. Um, would it be better if uh, people hadn't introduced little owls into the UK? maybe a little bit but not much do i want to do anything about it no not a thing um pheasants 47 million of them released into the uk countryside uh no licenses no restrictions just for shooting uh this is a bird that lives its native range is over a thousand miles away uh, the closest bit um, 
I think we ought to be regulating that a bit. Uh, Non-native species can cause big conservation problems, but quite a lot of them don't. Uh, Ringnet parakeets, mm, I'm not sure they're causing any conservation problems. I always say if I could click my fingers and all the ringnet parakeets would just disappear without any blood, any shotguns, they would just go from the UK, then I would. But that isn't an option that's available to us. And I don't think we could get rid of them. So I think we have to live with them probably. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's interesting with ringnet parakeets, and I'm happy to be proven wrong or someone to send a message in saying that's that's rubbish. I think I read somewhere correctly that ringnet parakeets are the, if not the second most common thing eaten by urban peregrines in London. I might be wrong with that, but I think that ringnet parakeets make a huge part of a urban peregrine, a London urban peregrine's diet. Or, but yeah, so it is certainly. That They're certainly found in nests, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Well, that is an interesting example because you mentioned grey squirrel. And the quickest way for us to get rid of grey squirrels and to get more red squirrels back is to allow pine martins to recover their former range. And this has been shown in Ireland, and I think there's evidence in parts of Scotland. As pine martins come back, uh, they create a landscape of fear, I love that phrase, for grey squirrels, because they eat them, but they also scare them so much that grey squirrels don't spend so much time on the ground, so they don't do so well. And grey squirrels die out, and behind the pine martins, red squirrels come back again. So that's quite an interesting example, I think, of where there is a natural solution to this. In fact, grey squirrels wouldn't have taken a hold if we hadn't wiped out a native predator from large parts of the country when they were released into the UK by large landowners, I'd like to point out. Absolutely. Right. Um, there is another question, and this actually links into something quite, um, quite interesting. Um, someone's asked, Wild Justice, have you, they had any thoughts on... Um, the issues at Chatsworth House regarding them covering it. I don't know too much about this, covering it in netting um, for birds. And that's made me think of another question in relation to it. How do Wild Justice decide on, right, we're going to focus on this? So I don't know if you know anything about the Chatsworth House um, thing with netting. I don't, but if you want to ask uh, I know a bit. It, it is to do with netting off. Is, uh, I'm not sure whether it's swifts, house martins or swallows. And there, there seems to have been a lot of this recently, or it's getting more um, publicity. Netting hedges, developers doing that, whole trees. Um, I think we're right to rise up against this um, because... Uh, Birds are protected by law, and I'm not saying, I don't know the details of Chatsworth either, so I'm not saying they've done anything illegal, but we've got to find a better way of living with birds. And a bit of bird shit on a few statues, 
maybe statues of slave traders anyway, but a bit of bird shit on some statues. We're not, going, we're not going into that. No, no, not going into that. Speaking as a Bristolian, I better not go into that. But, um, you know, a bit of bird shit around the place. We've got to live with that. We're causing so much damage to wildlife that uh, I think we ought to stand up, even when it seems a bit bloody-minded, but local action on particular cases starts the ball rolling. And, you know, it's going to be more difficult to persuade the government to introduce a green agriculture policy than it is to prevent people, builders and others being, and supermarkets being nasty to birds. So let's do both, try and do both, but let's do the things that we can as well as the things that it would be really good if we could. And obviously, well, I, I asked as well, how do, how do- Oh, how do we decide? Can you, can you hear me? Still, sorry, yeah. my, my Wi-Fi is going a bit off. How do Wild Justice, how do you decide what you're going to focus your- uh, How do we decide what we're going to focus our attention? Or, yeah. Maybe you don't want to give it away. No, no, no. It's um, uh, we usually um, uh, have a few options at any one time. We talk to our lawyers about which ones uh, look the best bet on legal grounds. Uh, we have quite a few glasses of wine and discuss it. Yep. Um, and then we pick on one or two and actually um, there is a new one, which is probably going to emerge uh, soon after Chris Packham has finished Springwatch. So I think you will hear what our newest legal challenge will be before the end of June. And there's a queue of others. There's, um, there's some things that we've been working on, researching both the law and what's happening on the ground for quite a while. And um, we can't do too many things at once actually, because they take quite a lot of time and they take quite a lot of money too. So yeah. we're quite picky about what we do, but um, you'll see some new things over the course of this year. And one of them, I hope, touch wood, will be really quite soon. Okay, well, I, I wait with a uh, bated breath, so to speak. Right, okay. Um, I've only got one more question that I always finish up with, Mark. Um, and that is, if you were to give one piece of advice to a budding blogger or campaigner, what would it be? Now you've been in been it for so long. Um, yeah, what, what would your one bit of advice be for com campaigner? Because that's, yeah, that, blogging has um, a big an impact, I think, sometimes. Uh, find lots of friends because you can't do it on your own and a bunch of and they do need to be friends really people you can chat to and talk to because that's how Chris and Ruth and I got together we're just mates who work together on bits and pieces and now we work together more closely on wild justice we trust each other we're we can we have a different take on things. That's why, you, you know, my, I'm quite good at some things. Ruth is very good at things that I'm rubbish at. Chris is amazingly good at things that neither Ruth nor I are any good at. 
um, you know, a team of people, um, get lots of advice and, and don't give up. I mean, you have to choose something that you might win, win on. Um, but you can win. We're in charge. We, the people, are in charge. You just have to persuade lots of other... I mean, the thing about not giving up, um, at the stage when you are almost sick to death with saying the same things to lots of different people, so I'm not sick to death with it, but I've said the same thing to you uh, once or twice in this chat, as I've said to loads of rooms full of people when I've been giving a talk and loads of people I've met, you know. Um, but there'll be some people, I hope, who've heard it for the first time or it's sunk in for the first time or they've heard it for a different, in a diff slightly different way and this time it made sense to them. Uh, saying something once is never going to win over the rest of the world. That's why advertising is repetitive. It's a bit dull, but it does influence all of us. Yeah. So you have to keep making the same points over and over again. When you think, oh, I've done this so often, that's when you're just beginning to break through. Brilliant. Good friends, sensible subject, keep going, don't get tired, and don't let the bastards grind you down. <laughs> Like my nan says, bugger it. Get on with it. That's it. Excellent. Right, Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you very much. Thank um, you. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a real pleasure. Um, and yeah, we've had plenty of people yeah, tuning in. So that's that's really good. Um, yeah, so thank you very much. Enjoy your next meeting. Yeah, next meeting. Next meeting has got wine involved as well as discussion. So thank you. Thanks very that's much. Fun.